0: Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester, and I'm Mike DiFilippo. Today we're going to talk about trauma resuscitation. We're going to talk about crystalloids, colloids, and which pressors to use. Uh, we have a pretty deep background. We're going to do kind of a, a deep cut here on how these fluids actually work and what pressors actually work. So as a quick background, um, we've talked about crystalloids and colloids off air a lot. We use crystalloids um, pretty pretty regularly All in the trauma time. resuscitation. Yeah. So we use you know normal saline, lactated Ringers. Um, and we're going to talk about where the, where the data for those come from. Um, <laughs> and we're also going to talk a lot about pressors because uh, pressors like dopamine have been really the, the preeminent pressor to be used in pre-hospital medicine for decades now. And it's a, what's the word, a garbage drug. So, um, <laughs> so, yeah, so in part of our, uh, our mission here to kind of talk about things and to change
1: our practice, we're going to talk about all these things. So, Mike, talk to us about crystalloids. All right, so, crystalloids. First, what is a crystalloid versus a colloid? Uh, This is something I didn't even know until last year in medical school after working several years as a paramedic. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Uh, A crystalloid is something that passes readily through a membrane, and a colloid is something that doesn't. It's as simple as that. Colloid's actually Greek for glue, so that's an easy way to remember it doesn't like to pass through. Hmm. So, crystalloids are just electrolyte solutions that have small molecules that can diffuse freely from intravascular to interstitial. So, from inside the vein to the surrounding compartment where all the tissue is. Uh, The principal component of crystalloid fluids is usually sodium chloride, and that's also the principal determinant of extracellular volume and how uh, fluids distribute uh, in the body. Because the plasma volume is only about a quarter of interstitial volume, only a quarter of a crystalloid will expand the plasma volume. So, what does that mean in regular people speak? If you give someone a liter of normal saline, about one-third or one-quarter of that will actually go into the plasma volume. So if you have someone that's plasma volume depleted, they're only really getting about 300 milliliters of actual fluid into the plasma. The rest is going into the interstitium. And that is the problem that you usually get if you're giving a lot of crystalloid fluid is you're going to get peripheral edema. Uh, The excess chloride inside sodium chloride can actually cause uh, renal vasoconstriction and kidney damage. And then there's a lot of data out there that shows that normal saline infusions can actually cause metabolic acidosis. Um, In the anesthesia literature, actually, it shows a lot that upwards of 30 milliliters per kilogram per hour, which in a 100 kilogram patient in a trauma scenario, that's like three liters, which is nothing. We probably give that, you know, Right, in the first 20, 30 minutes. But we shouldn't. We shouldn't, but, you know, that's the reality of the situation. Two EMS large four
2: IVs of lactated ringers. <laughs>
1: uh, so that, that induces what's called a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, um, which, you know, you don't need to be a, an expert in acid-base balance, but any deviation from the normal is not good, especially in a, a shock patient. Um, so then the other crystalloid fluid my personal favorite uh, is ringers lactate essentially normal saline with potassium ionized calcium and then the sodium chloride is kind of replaced by either sodium acetate or sodium lactate and the science behind that is the sodium lactate or acetate buffers the metabolic acidosis so you can give the volume of fluid but you won't get the negative uh, side effect of having the metabolic acidosis so for those of you out there that are like oh lactated ringers has lactate in it and lactate we use to measure sepsis and severe trauma can lactated ringers cause a bump in lactate? And the answer is lactated ringers does not cause a bump in lactate. The only time you get an elevated lactate from someone that's getting a lactated ringers infusion is if you draw from an IV line that is being actively infused with lactated ringers and the lactate will come back super, super high, which I see Ed rolling his eyes and that, that does happen.
0: <laughs> I look well, my, my favorite contention has always been like, well, we know that lactate is measured in sepsis, and if we give something with lactate in it, then the lactate will be high, and we're making them worse. No, just draw from just an a, IV line from another site, or yeah, yeah. It's not well. And the other thing too is, I, I think that there's going to be a significant amount of people who will listen and will say, like, but if I give a liter of normal saline, I have seen people's pressure go up. Thus, giving the liter of normal saline is giving a liter of
1: additional volume. Absolutely not. Actually, uh, to talk about that, so and
0: and normal saline,
2: but but. What you get back in it, I mean, think about the pH of normal saline mm-hmm. as opposed to ringers or you know, normal pH of the body. Normal saline isn't
1: normal. Well, so even normal saline, so you just said you get what you put in back from it. Uh, a liter infusion of normal saline actually gives you 1,100 milliliters in the body because it's slightly hypertonic and it ends up causing fluid shift. And giving the patient an extra 100 milliliters in their extravascular compartment, but Mike, it's called isotonic saline. <laughs> Please,
0: <so> clearly <laughs> that can't be the case. So, in th- but this is part of the reason we want to have this conversation is that there's we've talked for a long time that you know we have these kind of sacred cows that are out there that don't really work anymore, mm. but we work really hard to maintain them. So yeah, you no. know, up until and the the normal saline infusion and the Ringer's Ringer's infusion for trauma was. The gold standard up until 2005 ish i even the
2: new atls i mean they're still like saying okay one liter and then consider blood now it's like they used to be like two liters before you'd even think about giving somebody blood
0: right and even going back you know like the 80s was a while ago but the you know the 80s standard was just give them all of the saline like we were diluting
1: the joke is we were diluting people's blood into coolie that's a pre-hospital thing if you ask trauma surgeons they're like no no they need blood right away And I I feel like sometimes up until recently, in my opinion, I feel like the literature for specialties has been very uh, singularly focused. So, you know, pre-hospital would only focus on pre-hospital literature. EM would only focus on EM literature. Uh, And now you're kind of seeing, I think it's because of of how uh, data is now so easily accessible. You're seeing uh, a lot of cross-communication between different specialties. Uh, You know, push-dose epi and TXA, for instance, used for decades in OB-GYN and recently has just been coming up more more frequently in pre-hospital em literature and stuff like that well but
0: and that's kind of what we're talking about where for a long time pre-hospital was like this is the way that we do it and the rest of medicine was kind of like okay that's fine but that's wrong And like, we we would feel like personally attacked by that. Like, how dare you, it's sir? Like, it's like the cousin, how dare gu- you, yeah, it's you like, accuse us it's of it's doing the, the thing. you don't want to give
1: life advice Mo- to? You're like, hey, most <laughs>
2: most of medicine goes to us. Oh, you're adorable. Look at you.
1: You're no, but that's exactly.
0: It. It's like no, no. You don't understand the way that we do things. And they're like, you're right. We don't <laughs> understand the way you do things. Like, help us out for this. So, you know, looking through all the literature for crystalloids, we know that it doesn't really do uh what we want it to do right because not it, a panacea yeah right and nothing ever is so it, it, that's kind of the hardest part where i think we want as an industry pre-hospital we want a magic bullet for
1: anything right i think there's yeah. like an unspoken belief in the pre-hospital environment that a little bit of fluid cures everything because uh, i'm even thinking oh. back to my own practice when i was a medic i mean i mean i'm still a medic but i should say when i was <laughs> practicing medic way back in um, the day that you know, I would tell patients, oh, "I'm going to give you a little fluid. You should feel better." There was something about being on a really bad trauma. You get your lines in, you have fluid running, and you're right. like, "Okay, good. Now I got everything all settled." Well, and there's a
0: lot to be said for the placebo effect too. I think when you have a, sure. when you have a medical patient who's you know a little shocky, and you're like, "Well, they see you know a big bag of fluid coming through." I I don't I'm obviously I don't have data to back
1: that up, but I think can like it's will like, themselves okay. to raise their systolic blood right, pressure. Right, exactly. You
0: can. We just got to rub essential oils on them, and their pressure will come right back up. <laughs>
1: Oh, the boy. lavender essential oil. But step 4 of ACLS.
0: Yeah, but there's something to be said for that. I
2: mean, I think people do, you know, like it seems like, you know, you're hanging a bag of fluid, you feel like you're doing something. You know, you get the EMT to help you spike the bag and they're like, "Okay, we're doing something. There's like a team effort here and there is a placebo effect to some mm-hmm. extent, but we're not doing anything. Let's be right. honest.
1: And next we could talk about colloids, which I don't even think we touch in the pre-hospital environment ever. Um, No,
2: in medic school, it was, okay, these are colloids, and we
1: don't ever use them, and you don't need to know. Right. Uh, All a colloid is, is just, you may have heard it called suspension, for those of you that are taking a chemistry class. uh, They're just large solute molecules that don't pass readily, so they just hold water in whatever compartment they're in. So if you're giving it IV, they stay in the vascular compartment, and they pull fluid from the interstitium and tissues into the vasculature. Uh, So, for example, just quick, to be clear, is the whole point of trauma resuscitation. I know we're going to get into it, but we'll get there. (laughs) Coming up next. (laughs) Uh, So if you give someone one liter of a colloid, for example, just to compare to a crystalloid, uh, you'll increase plasma volume by 700 milliliters as opposed to 250 milliliters with the uh, the crystalloid. Uh, Some common colloids you may hear are albumin or starch or dextrans. So that's pretty much it I think the military uses Hespan or something like that. Yeah, that's another. I think that's a starch. starch Yeah, it it had a starch. Uh, So the age old question is, uh, with a lot of things, why are we doing it the way we're doing it? And why did it start that way? So there were actually early studies done in hemorrhagic shock dating. It was way back to the 1800s, believe it or not, uh, that showed that shock was associated with interstitial fluid deficit. So what does that mean when we're talking about all this stuff? So again, to remind everybody, the interstitial fluid is the fluid that surrounds the tissues, not the fluid that's in the vasculature. So going back, crystalloids uh, expand the interstitial fluid a lot. So that's where crystalloid fluid resuscitation became popularized and it really carried through. More recent studies, and by recent studies I mean in the 1970s to 80s, showed that shock in total uh, showed patient improvement if there was improvement of cardiac output and systemic oxygen delivery, and even then that says colloid solutions are preferred because you provide oxygen to tissues by having a transfer through the whole body in the vasculature, allowing tish- allowing the, the fluid to distribute, not necessarily expanding the interstitial fluid, um, but despite the superiority of colloids even in uh, literature in the 70s and 80s, crystalloids remain the popular choice for volume resuscitation in the U.S. and still do to this day. Uh, the principal argument you see people f- arguing for colloids is that there is a failure for lack of survival benefit in colloid resuscitation, uh, which even when I was looking through the data, that does actually hold true. You see improvement of vital signs, improvement of uh, um, Lab numbers and stuff like that, but you actually don't see any change in survival, benefit, mortality, or anything like that. But again, considering the cohort that you're dealing with, when we're talking about
0: trauma resuscitation, sure, like outcomes are always going to be bad. So, and just real quick, like, and I just at the risk of being cynical about cost, the question is always like, well, if one works better than the other, we have to buy it. Um, And this is coming from JAMA in 2008, where normal saline um, costs two dollars and thirty-two cents uh for a liter and albumin cost $232 for 1 liter. Wow. So that's yeah. if if I'm saying out price points you're like well it turns out saline is better than albumin but albumin is 100 times And what's more the expiration price, so on do, that? Right. What's the storage guidelines like? Now to be cl- to be fair this is from 2008 so this is this is older data. Mm. Um, well price definitely plays. role. I can't see right. that
2: albumin lasts longer on shelf life than saline.
0: Well, but, again, but if, you're, if theoretically you're running through a scenario where you're going to start giving albumin over normal saline in trauma resuscitation, you wouldn't have to worry about it expiring because you would be using it often, depending on the system. Yeah, you know what mm. I mean. So that's like I, I appreciate the shelf life argument, and that's something that you know we always have to have when we're stocking stuff. I just tend to think that if I'm looking at well, okay, we're worried about how we're going to resuscitate people, and this is available to do it better,
1: but this thing is. 100 times more expensive right I no, you from know. from a management perspective it makes sense uh which is unfortunate in our healthcare system i think that money plays a larger role than maybe it does uh you know some of our listeners overseas you know maybe it's not of a bigger concern as it is over here
2: yeah well i mean that's a whole nother episode
0: or uh, five yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other thing um, we should actually do an episode on cost and how if if money was no object uh how things would change. How, how things would change.
2: Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah,
1: if we had robots that could run our codes. So I like this is a, an intensivist that, that wrote a uh, large book on critical care medicine. And uh, Dr. Marino, M-A-R-I-N-O, uh, and his solution is called the problem-based solution. Uh, his theory is, you know, one type of fluid is not optimal for all types of hypovolemia. Uh, which I think makes sense. You know, you want to use different fluids based off different problems. Someone with septic shock or distributive shock, um, you know, may have different fluid uh, resuscitation needs versus hemorrhagic or cardiogenic. And you certainly see that with pressors. Uh, So I think, you know, logically that would hold true for uh, fluids. Uh, So his suggestions were the following three uh, broad categories. In cases of life-threatening hypovolemia from blood loss, where a prompt increase in plasma is necessary, an isotonic colloid fluid would be most effective, like albumin. Hypovolemia secondary to dehydration, where there is a uniform loss of extracellular fluid, a crystalloid like ringers is appropriate. And I think we see those a lot. You know, those are like the patient that passed out from being overheated. Uh, You can argue septic shock a little bit with dehydration. Uh, And then the last one is in case of hypovolemia, where hypoalbuminemia is implicated. So those are things hypoalbuminemia is essentially... Uh, lack of the body's ability to make protein states. You see that in it is like liver cirrhosis uh, and things like that, because the liver is what makes your proteins in the body. Uh, and a hypertonic colloid is appropriate for that. So the other thing too is these. Uh, there's a lot of instances where we're not going to see these illnesses pre-hospitally. Like or even know, be like, able to differentiate them. Yeah, without. like
0: knowing, knowing someone's albumin level pre-hospitally is not a realistic expectation, which is, which is fine. And the other right. thing, too, is we're just talking about fluids and pressors. We're not even getting into the whole blood debate because I know— That's a whole other episode. <laughs> when we, yeah, when we start getting into to trauma and all this other kind of stuff, you know, do we use fluid? Do we use whatever? I was like, no, the, the answer in trauma is probably whole blood. But given these debates, and that we've been doing the wrong thing since the 18th century— you know, this is, that's, yeah. I mean, that's and and we're going to start
2: now. getting a basis of evidence now because there's more and more pre hospital programs that are carrying whole blood out there, right? Or at least packed RBCs and plasma. and
0: Yeah. And that's something that we're going to get to. Um, that's where we're going to start addressing that in this episode. This is just fluids. So, pressors, so,
2: I've always, I've been, I've read a little bit about, um, hypertonic fluids. Mm. So, about, especially with. Head injuries, ICP, we're also talking about shock, being able to give hypertonic fluids and give less of them. And it would, you know, osmotically draw in interstitial fluid into the intravascular space. So
1: So there's been research into hypertonic fluids. So the idea, like you said, is to reduce edema by pulling that fluid into the intravascular space. And provided the patient you're doing it has adequate renal functioning or you can dialyze them and get the fluid out, uh, you know, it'd be good to reduce the edema and swelling in those patients. There's been animal studies that show the effectiveness of hypertonic fluids in shock patients, especially those that are more edematous. Um, But uh, when it came to human trials, uh, there was no proven superiority over isotonic fluids. Wow. And actually, speaking of that, uh, there was recent studies done in 2018, two of them back-to-back published in the New England Journal of Medicine, that compared mortality benefit of lactated ringers to uh, normal saline. They refer to lactated ringers as a balanced crystalloid solution, meaning it has other things in there than just saline and chloride. Um, And they found that among critically ill adults, the use of something like ringers for IV fluid administration resulted in lower rates of death uh, from any cause, Um, but there was no difference in hospital free days in non-critically ill. Uh, so basically what that means was in really critically ill patients, using something like Ringers was beneficial because it lowered the all-cause mortality. But when it came to non-critically ill patients, there was no change in hospital stay. So there's really no change in their course of uh, outcome, at least in a crystalloid choice.
0: So that makes kind of part of the bigger debate where we always talk about you know our goal is to increase survivability. Mm-hmm. So it would depend on what your preferred endpoint would be. If you're just caring about reducing mortality, which is, I, th- I think, is kind of our goal, then that works out. Um, the, you know, the risk for stayed days or days stayed in the hospital is going to end up being, you know, there's extra risk for nosocomial infections and things like that. But I'm perfectly content with just but, reducing mortality. But again, mortality. we get into that
2: cost benefit. That's sure. what they're looking at. They're saying, you know, because they're going from the economic standard of, well, you know, if we, <clears throat> if we, um, give them lactated ringers, we'll see a, a two day, you know, a two day improvement Decrease in the stay, stay and everybody will jump on it and say, well, the extra cost is absolutely weighed out by the benefits.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. And,
2: you know, it hate you hate to have to think this way, but this is how the people who run your systems
0: think. Right. Well, and, and so that's, this is a, um, at the risk of getting too political, this is a very American problem mm-hmm. where, you know, we, healthcare is a business, it's an industry. So there's always a worry about what the bottom line is going to be. Now, again, this isn't something we're not going to, you know, address too much on this episode, but you know, that is part of the problem. If you have, and I, I hate, you know, it was like, well, the bean counters upstairs and to say, but you know, (laughs) I, but that's kind of what it comes down to is, you know, if we have two data sets that show that one intervention improves mortality, people die less, which frankly is the whole point of what we're doing, um, you know, I worry that people are gonna be like, Well, yeah, they might die less, but it also costs us money. It's so Yeah, it's that's, that's a risk.
2: It's tough. Um So let's so let's look at this as a fluid wise. What fluid and we'll take it from pre hospital. What fluid should we be carrying?
1: My personal opinion, I think it should just be lactated ringers. I, I just I, agree. I yeah, absolutely agree. But people I, go like, Oh, but, for, but for it's not
2: compatible with meds or stop it. Mm. Like, you're supposed to have normal saline or D5 for infusions. Like, there's a lot of dogma in this. Can we break that so, but down? I, but the
0: other thing, too, is I don't know that there's there is one right answer. Like, I do think that there, you know, you, for, like, this particular type of resuscitation, yeah, ringers is probably going to work better. But I do think there's an indication to have normal saline. I think there's an indication to have D5W. It's a matter of, you know, what do you want to carry more and what do you want to give in these types of settings, you know? All right, let's
2: give you a hypothetical. You can only carry one fluid. You have to be able to infuse drugs with it. You have to be able to give it its fluids, resuscitation and its maintenance fluids. What do you do?
1: Ringers. Yeah. Just because, so I always like to think of EMS stuff in a practical standpoint. Like it's always great to theoretically talk about all this stuff. But the reality is you're going to be in the field. You're going to be deep in the shit. Things are gonna fly off the handle. Right. You are not gonna be, you know, monitoring really how much fluid you are giving because all of a sudden your patient's airway is gonna go to crap and all this other type of stuff. So I always like to prepare for worst possible scenario where you don't have uh, all, all your marbles with you in a moment of, of stuff. And I think you know the easiest one with the less complications would be Ringer's lactate. Yeah, I gun to my head,
0: one fluid is gonna be Ringer's. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah, Makes I, sense. I tend to buy that. Um, if you had a choice between saline and Ringer's. Those are the two fluids you carry. When do you use one over the other?
0: Well, I think that's kind of what we're saying. I, I think there's, I do think there are more indications to use rigors. and I think we're finding more and more reasons to use it. Mm-hmm. My only contention is that I think there's also reasons to use saline. Like what? Because, well, just like even if we're just using, you know, like general bolus, you know, like a 250cc infusion— you know i think that's perfectly appropriate for saline and if we're talking about resuscitation for hypovolemia then i have a problem using red so let
2: me play devil's advocate if we're only given like 250 or we're only given a maintenance and some few, why give it
0: yeah, and i'm i'm not necessarily disagreeing with you i i just think as is you know there's probably some indications where i think i mean I remember, less, I remember i remember
2: there was a time where we would take intoxicated people and we would start you know, a 500 bag of saline on them because it was like, oh, I'll feel better. They won't get a hangover. It'll hydrate them. But we knew. But that got debunked. Right. Like
1: it's. Well, no, I mean, that's not necessarily wrong, but those patients, for instance, like they're going to feel better because you're going to be diluting the alcohol. You're going to be providing at least some intravascular, uh, quote unquote, resuscitation for the patient that drank too much. Um, but. You know, in that aspect, a lot of data came out that said actually oral hydration is a lot better for those patients as far as rebuilding intravascular volume is better just to drink a liter of water as opposed to getting a liter of normal saline. Um, (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but even then, in the ER, they're going to get a banana bag. Yeah, but even a banana bag has a lot of stuff that Ringers has. You know, right. it's it's more electrolytes. It's you know a little bit more glucose and and even
2: that people are like that's that's a waste. There's a lot of people mm. out there that are saying now that that's a waste. I remember reading at least one or two things you know out there in the the blogosphere, or the, the, you know, blogosphere. On the Well, you know the the le, the legit blogs <laughs> out that, there on the know, intertubes, not on Reddit. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> we love you Reddit, but come on. <laughs> so.
0: All right, so if we're going, so got to be some moderation. Taking these, this fluid debate, we've got crystalloids, we've got colloids. Um, I mean, big picture, that's that's fluid that we can give, but do we think that giving fluid is going to be the best intervention? I mean, because the next thing we have to talk about is pressors, right? So when we're talking about you know gen- general resuscitation, whether it's trauma or hypovolemia or shock, are we better off using pressors? We better off using fluid? Is there like a happy middle
1: ground? And that's kind of the next part of the discussion we want to get into. So, talk to us about pressors, Mike. Right. Uh, so, pressors broadly cateri- categorized into uh, how they affect the central vasculature, or, or like the heart, and the peripheral vasculature, like the arteries and veins. Uh, just a quick recap for all of those. If it's been a long time since paramedic school or EMT school, uh, chronotropy is stuff that relates to the heart rate. Inotropy is the force of the contraction and dromotropy is the speed of the conduction. Uh, so the first one we're going to talk about is inopressors. So inopressors are things that we're used to like norepi or levofed, epi and dopamine, uh, so all of those are catecholamine derivatives and what a catecholamine is is your body's own personal uh epi and norepi norepi and they have different varying levels of alpha beta and dopaminergic stimulation so Again, quick recap. Uh, alpha is pretty much just peripheral va- vasculature and uh, venous uh, constrictors. Your beta is split into beta 1, beta 2. Easy way to remember it is beta one's the heart because you have one heart. Beta 2 is the lungs because you have two lungs, at least most of us. Uh, <laughs> so.
0: And most of us only have one heart, but, I mean, some of my exes might disagree. But. Hey. Oh. Um,
1: that was so funny. That was a funny joke. <laughs> inopressors uh, you're going to really use if you need to stimulate both vasoconstriction and increase cardiac activity. Uh, So an example of that would be distributive shock where someone's in anaphylaxis. Uh, So, you know, you would use epinephrine for that, for instance, because epi has about strong equal alpha 1, alpha 2, and beta 1 and beta 2. Uh, or beta-1 and some beta-2 agonism. So you get the peripheral vasoconstriction, you get the increased cardiac contractility, and then you also get a little bit of bronchodilation to help with their anaphylaxis. Uh, of all the ionopressors, for most shocks, it's going to be norepi is going to be the most favorable because it has the best safety profile, which is something you really do need to take in consideration with uh, any sort of presser agent. Uh, and, it's, and norepi really is the presser of choice for most distributive uh, shocks like sepsis and obstructive shocks. Um, dopamine... The old favorite uh, <laughs> has largely fallen out of favor. A lot of clinical trials literature uh, have said it should be largely avoided and really only used as an adjunctive agent in refractory shock. So if you have someone that's already on three pressors, which I hope to God in the pre-hospital environment you're never literally <laughs> running in this three pressors so <laughs> Yeah, unless you're in like a terrible interfacility transport at 6:59, you're due to get off at seven. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, the second category of pressors are the inotropes, so the ones that increase just cardiac contractility. Uh, you don't really see them in the pre-hospital environment that much. They're, they're largely avoided because they have a very high risk of causing uh, arrhythmia and myocardial ischemia uh, because they do directly increase the workload of the heart. Uh, you probably heard dobutamine and milrinone. You'll actually even see patients on home drips of milrinone if they have end-stage uh, congestive heart failure. Uh, these inotropes are really indicated in septic shock when there's evidence of decreased cardiac function. Uh, so quick, uh, sidebar in a septic shock, septic shock is the only type of shock where your cardiac function initially will actually be increased, uh, sepsis because it causes a distributive peripheral, uh, vasodilation causes hyperdynamic flow in the body. So you actually get uh higher, uh, uh, cardiac index uh, in those patients, but eventually they do decompensate into a decreased cardiac uh, function shock. And then that's when you want to use something like uh, dobutamine uh, or milrinone. Um, inotropes are the first agent for cardiogenic shock, which makes sense because that's the heart directly is failing, like in congestive heart failure. Uh, and the one you, you see most used is dobutamine. It's a relatively safe uh, profile, uh, may cause some hypotension actually, believe it or not. Uh, because of the way it works. And uh, you really only use these uh, if fluid resuscitation has already been tried, uh, just because they, they do have that risk of arrhythmia and myocardial ischemia. Lastly, the ones we want to talk about is vasopressors. Uh, these ones just do peripheral vasoconstriction with minimal effect on the heart rate and cardiac contractility. Uh, you'll see vasopressin for some of you that still carry it for some reason uh, in the pre-hospital <laughs> environment. Uh, other ones are phenylephrine, and then uh, that's it that we'll talk about today. Um, but vasopressin, whenever you're using pressors, you have to be really careful about the side effect. Vasopressin is really, really, really highly associated with digital ischemia, so that means if you're giving it, especially, for instance, in combination, if you use push-dose epi, this is a very common scenario, uh, patient's fingers and toes will actually start turning necrotic or black uh, just because of the amount of the high power of peripheral vasoconstriction it causes. Um, phenylephrine, for example, also, it causes such powerful peripheral vasoconstriction. It tricks the body's receptors, in a sense, and causes a reflex bradycardia in the heart uh, because the heart gets tricked by the peripheral vasoconstriction. So, you know, those are vasopressor agents that work on the peripheral. And, again, their their safety profile is very dangerous. So, and the other thing with vasopressin is you... As time goes on,
0: there's always, like, arguing data sets, right? And we talk about cardiac arrest a lot on the show, but vasopressin tends to kind of come back and leave the cardiac arrest algorithm as time goes on. So, like, in this context, we're talking about shock, so it's not necessarily the best drug for shock, but there's debatable evidence in cardiac arrest, which I think is kind of interesting um, since we have no idea what the
1: hell we're doing in cardiac arrest. Now we, um, it's <laughs> like, yeah, that yeah, sure. goodness, yeah, in no. Invasopressin, Invasopressin actually, if we're going to talk about individual meds, uh, fairly recently as of 2017, uh, became the suggested secondary, uh, presser agent in septic shock next to norepi. So right. if you have someone that is on a norepi drip and they're not really responding, which some projects do carry all of these medications, and it is likely maybe that you'll be transporting a patient for like a half hour on a trip like this. I don't see, think that's unreasonable. Um, you know, the next agent to choose would be vasopressin. And you do actually get outside of that risk window of causing digital ischemia if you are giving a uh, catecholamine derivative like norepi, uh, and then you give vasopressin. It's not really as much of a concern. But if you have a long trip with someone, who because and, and again, it, you know, we talk about the actual
0: efficacy of having the drug on a truck or on a unit. If you have someone who's in septic shock and you're giving norepinephrine and they're not reactive to it, epinephrine is a drug you're going to have. And that's a good second line drug too. Yeah, definitely. Like Vasopressin might be the preferred physiologic, you know, the actual like medication. But when we're talking realistically about who's going to carry what, if you don't have vasopressin, you can give norepinephrine then you can give epinephrine.
1: I think the power of, uh, using both those combined would be, you know, they, they're very strong, beta agonists, but I think both of them combined synergistic with their alpha agonism would give what you want with the vasopressin. So vasopressin you would give to help contract peripheral vasculature, because obviously, as we all know, the septic shock causes uh, a distributive or extreme vaso and venodilation, um, or vasodilation, I'm sorry. Uh, so giving both norepi and epi would, co- would cause a synergistic alpha stimulation and cause some vasoconstriction, which you would want to get from vasopressin.
0: Right. So, and, you know, we've talked previously about push-dose epinephrine, um, and the, the value that that adds I love push and, dose and, dose epi. I, I love the push-dose epi. Oh, yeah. So going around the table, gun to your head, one presser you have, I'm Team Norepinephrine. Who's with me?
2: I'm epi.
1: I'm a practicality guy when it comes to EMS, and push-dose epi is the most practical presser cool you're both dead to me No, so here's hold here's, here's on, here's, you the can
0: push,
2: hold on. Yeah. here's the thing <laughs> Did you stop stop okay <laughs> yes you like norepi and norepi can be done that's fine yeah. and yes you can run it through a peripheral line i know that you know like the old idea that it had to be a central line only is kind of over with but here's the thing comfort and the middle of the bell curve most clinicians are are comfortable with a, with their with their lane. Right. Okay? Uh, so so by giving Epi, you give the ability, I can give it push dose, yeah. I can start an infusion, I right. can do a dirty drip, it gives me the alpha, it gives me beta, it gives me pretty much everything. For less than an hour, if I'm going to be with a patient, Epi is not a bad choice.
0: No, I'm, I don't disagree that Epi isn't a bad choice. Um, and and Mike, you're right, dealing with like the practicality thing, I don't disagree with that either. I'm dealing in like perfect world- Everything's going to work out fine. Like, what do you have? Realistically, I'm I'm with you. You're going to have epinephrine. I'd still on the truck, it. but yeah. you know. Actually, I, I want to change. It. I would do dopamine.
1: <laughs> oh, <I'm told. laughs> Jk. That's, that's cold. That's JK. cold.
0: So, and and but, I, what I like about this conversation is for so long, for so long, we went through like you have to have dopamine. Oh, yeah. You must give dopamine, and then you started and at then,
1: two micrograms yeah. per kilogram per minute. Yeah, and then you <laughs> oh, yeah, totally straight, straight, up, straight up. up the renal dose oh, and the vasopressor god.
2: dose, and it's uh, kill
0: me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that dopamine <laughs> clock was my uh, my my favorite part of med school. Oh, oh my god, god. And the
2: dopamine <laughs> calculation. Like, why are we doing this to people? I mean, it's
0: uh, it was it's like, like, wait, hang what on. A so if I do, if I start up here and then I have right, to yeah. make. I go down to the bottom of the clock, and then I have to adjust the dosages. And, and then like to
2: the other like extreme, you, you had I I had some of these when I was a brand new medic student, and it was like, oh, we just turn it up until we see their blood pressure spike, then we turn it back down, titrate <laughs> to effect. I'm like, oh,
0: titrate to effect is one of my favorite terms nice. <laughs> in medicine. Uh, it's like, ah, now it's working. we we'll do that. <laughs> it's
2: like spin the wheel until. But like, the argument
0: you know, that used to drive me crazy is when you know we're talking about like the, the dopamine clock and dosages. Like, well, I would just hook it up to an IV pump, and then I would hit start. And I that think I that's a it. Regional then, thing for I don't know if that's. And like I'm a not saying the standard. old school
2: guys were wrong. I, g- I get what they're saying. No, no, but no. <laughs> fine, but so like, <laughs> but like
0: my my entire medicine experience is in the 21st century. Right. So when it comes in, you're like, well, what are you going to do if the pump fails? And you're like, well, it's not. It's not it has, it has multiple channels, and then I also have a backup. <laughs> so if that, if, um, if, that one, if that one fails, then I'll just use the other. One. And then so if be like, my set uh, of bloodletting knives aren't available, i right, exactly. Go to the leeches. But like, but the other thing, like, so at, at, an, op- at an operational level, there's be like, well, well, what are you going to do if this technology <laughs> fails? Like, I have a computer in my pocket. I push a button, and it calls anywhere around the world. What are the odds that this tech? Like, what do you mean? I mean what if this technology <sighs> fails? We have redundancy so that it doesn't. Like right, but it's so important that you know how the clock works. Like, it's an interesting right. point because like, we—it'll be we on have your really, exam
2: because this generation has really come through the cusp of this, and I and I think the, the older generations, you know, the boomers and stuff like that, they they don't understand just the the volume of stuff. Like you look at the phone, you know, you look. I'm, I, I'm holding my phone in my hand, and I must I probably have a half a dozen medical texts on there, right. at least two comprehensive medical like references. A pediatric reference that is, you know, length-based resuscitation table. I can literally put the kid's weight in it; it will give me everything I need anytime, no matter what.
0: Well, so, Mike, how many thousand-page textbooks do you and I have on our iPads at this point? Yeah, it's that. It's too many. Yeah, too many is the answer. Like, not it's not, it's not a flex. It gets crazy. It's just but like okay. we, we have, have flex, it.
1: but okay. Yeah, like We're there's
0: <laughs> <laughs> we have some, like there's more memory in your phone than there was on the Apollo 11 lander. Like, we have all the technology. Yeah, we could need to do stuff. So and just getting back to your original point, we're like all oh, the old school people with dopamine. So how much of us as an industry using dopamine and being almost purposely regressive is, well, we've always given dopamine and I'm uncomfortable giving an alpha drug like norepinephrine because I've always given dopamine.
2: Look, I can tell you, I can tell you from past experience, we don't give a lot of pressers anyway because right. a lot of people mm-hmm. get away from it. Um, there are programs, so, but, I bet you if you go back and you search through all your charts and you do procedure log or you do whatever you want to do and whatever, you know, whatever EPCR you're using, I'm going to tell you that people probably, dopamine probably one of your least used drugs.
0: So how much of that is a worry of hanging a drip mm. and against the ease of just running yes. fluid? Yeah.
1: Trail? No, definitely. Yes. I hated the pump. Yeah. <laughs> I hated it. I,
0: it so I hated things. it. So many I hated it. I had to use it. I had to enter numbers. I would
1: find any reason not to. Maybe that's why I like Push Dose Epi so much because when it came out, it was like, you don't need to use the pump. Oh, yeah. Oh, all right. Great. Made it more simpler. It didn't have to have the headache of like, oh, you got to, you know, massage the the diaphragm when you're setting the pump up and make sure there's no bubbles uh, i have to and
2: take the cartridge out like are you
1: joking me like this patient's got a damn blood pressure like 60 over shit and i'm massaging some diaphragm yeah, in the back of a talk, ambulance. Sweet talking talking <laughs> it excuse please, me sir please, please, please don't module, die i gotta get oh these bubbles please,
2: please there's one bubble left please just come out
1: like, ain't nobody got time for that <laughs> <laughs> give me give me a 10 milliliter syringe with some push that are massaging it, it. Yeah. Yeah, just <laughs> it's just so much better i mean i I wouldn't argue that you know people don't give pressors because you have to use the pump because i'm a year away from finishing medical school i think i would still do it if i'm a doctor having to use a pump like give me give me a dirty epi over it
0: and Uh, i i I tend to agree with you but that's what i'm saying when you come in like we're talking about all these pressers that have to be given and it's like well pre-hospitally like and don't go wrong i'm opposed to the excuse of well i'm 10 minutes away from the hospital it's going to take me eight minutes to hang the drip what's the point of giving it and mm-hmm. that's why i like i i'm a, I'm a big <sighs> proponent of push dose drugs yeah. but that being said if you have the drugs available you should probably use them and if so if you have you know a 10 15 20 minute transport and you have the choices of using these drugs we want you to know what the best one to use yeah, is. and it's absolutely. usually not fluid despite the fact that you you know you'll throw two liters of normal salient or ringers into somebody see their systolic come up 20
1: points and then pat yourself on the back for I it. I think that's the argument other people get away with too. They're like, "Oh, you know, you have to give two liters of fluid before you can even decide that you need a presser." Do we? Mm, and that's do we though? And that's getting. When I first started working as a medic, I was very strict with that rule, and I don't think I hung my hung my first presser until like a year or so in. And then, uh, you know, as you go to more classes, you learn more. You talk to more progressive people. Then I started really aggressively using push dose pressers and and IV pump pressers on, you know, your post-cardiac arrest that, you know, like, listen, these patients are super sick or the or the super septic patients from the nursing home. Like these patients are way behind the curve. They're going to need pressers immediately because what's the first thing they do in the ER when, when you get them there? Right. Like, okay, you gave them 300 milliliters of normal saline. They have 200 left in your 500 bag doesn't matter. They start them on a presser or two. Yeah. Sure. Like ASAP when you get there. And it's like, how come I'm I'm not doing that in the field yet?
0: Well, and that's that's kind of a classic thing. And, And Mike, I know you and I have gone through this where, you know, you go through medic school and they teach you things that were valid, say, 15 years ago. And you're like, oh, well, this is the way that you do it. And then you get it out into the field and they're like, okay, it's cute that you think that we do it that way. But no, we're not... We're not doing that.
2: There's like, also a there's also a real learning deficit from pre-hospital of understanding what you do having consequences down the line. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, yeah. you give those two liters of fluid, and, you know, there's a couple people who have some good talks out there on the Internet. And they, they talk about, well, you know, somebody doesn't look good, so we give them a liter of saline. And then, you know, they look a little punky later, give them another liter of saline. And, you know, now they're not feeling good. So we give them three, four liters. Now they're short of breath. And now we're doing this. And now we give them more saline. And, you know, those two liters matter. They're going somewhere. There's right. a payoff for that. So you really have to know if you want to be you know, at the top of your game, so to speak, what are you getting out of this? I mean, is this somebody who's mildly dehydrated that, you know what, 500 mils of fluid would probably do some good for them? Sure. Or is this somebody that, Hey, you know what, you know that, you know, that, that septic patient that's been in the nursing home, you know what, you're only going to get a little temporary bump and then they're going to drop and then they're going to, you know, get a maybe a little temporary bump. And is that temporary bump gonna help or hurt them down the road? Because now you're not picking up that, you know what, they're not coming back as strong. They're right. not, well, they're but not getting it better. And now you've got a now you've got a patient who's got a lot of fluid. Now they're they gotta go on Lasix. they gotta get dialyzed, and that has a whole sequela of garbage right. well, they have to live definitely. with.
0: But that's something that we've always been kind of bad with as an industry. We tend to look at our the way that we operate as a silo. Where like we do pre-hospital, exactly, and then that's it, and we're this we're, is somebody else's problem. This yeah, is, exactly. Like, I don't, and care. don't be wrong; they were alive
2: when I left them. Yeah, well,
0: and don't be wrong. There's there is a, I don't want to say a value, but it, there is a, a, I guess benefit to having one patient at a time for twenty five to thirty minutes, right? Sure, like, there like, is. that's fine. It's one of the better parts of our industry, but understanding that in that twenty five or thirty minutes, you can kind of change the trajectory of their care, because like how many pa- how many patients be brought into an ER where like they're fixed. And you're kind of like, no, 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 no. I swear to God, they were very sick 10 minutes ago.
1: CHFers for sure. All CFD the time, right? right. Yeah. Like you get, but like, for, like but for an-
2: every one of those, I bet you there's one or two that, hey, they look pretty good, and now they're not so good.
0: No, sure. But what I'm saying is, you know, we have these patients that we can tangibly see differences in, mm-hmm. right? Like, the, you know, you give someone who's got, f- you know, a failure patient, you give them CPAP, you give them nitrates, whatever else. And oh. then you're just kind of like, all right, now they're better. Look what I did. And, you're, you know, you have to convince the ER staff that they were actually sick at some point. We see that, and we see, like, oh, that's a tangible benefit. But we kind of ignore, like, in this type of setting, like, if we, if I treat someone with a presser prehospitally, then they'll be better long-term. Definitely. You know, and that's that's a, that's a kind of, like, a, a, a difficult thing for us, like, for me to kind of conceptualize. So lots of stuff that we've been talking about today, lots of stuff on pressers. We do want to know what you guys use... Um, what you found and you know how your protocols have changed if you're still using dopamine i actually want to know uh what your experience with it is and actually if there's a counter argument to it i'm also interested in oh yeah too um but we want to know what you guys are using we want to know what your
1: experiences have been um i want to know if there's anyone out there using colloids oh absolutely at me directly on twitter (laughs) yeah please for real yeah. yeah, no, that's that's information <laughs>
0: that we want to know. We'll put that out on all of our social media. Ads.
2: And if you have uh, ideas on how to do this stuff, you know, like uh, how to draw stuff up or different ideas on how to administer pressors or what your fluid strategies when it comes to certain conditions, let's hear about it. I'd love to talk. I'd also it
0: like to hear short transports with pressor started. I want to hear like one time I was three minutes away from a hospital and I started a Fed drip. That'd be fun.
2: I don't know if I would do that
0: at that point. Well, I'm not saying that we would. I just, I mean, because there's always the one where just like one time I was 90 seconds away from a hospital and I put in four IVs. And double intubated. I, double t- <laughs> I intubated it twice because I could. So I'm interested uh, to hear that stuff. But in the meantime, be sure to follow us on all the social media. Uh, we are on Twitter at Overrun EMS. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Overrun Productions. Uh, Overrun Productions at Gmail is where you can contact us and let us know all the things. And also on the website. We are on Apple Podcasts. Google Play, Spotify, Alexa, play the Overrun is always my favorite thing. I'm going to say that every single Stitcher. time. Stitcher. And we're on Stitcher as well. Everywhere. Everywhere you listen Check to. Check out market. the just, merch
2: just, page. Buy a shirt.
0: Oh, we also have merchandise as well. Have a kid, buy you a onesie. Buy. Have, have a kid, buy a onesie. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, Tax sh- deductions, yeah. folks. <laughs> <laughs> That's the advantage of having children. Somebody you got family. hosed uh, on your returns this year. I got a, I got a solution. Get your favorite deduction and a onesie. That's the fun part of having children. No adult onesies yet. Not yet, but we're working on it because Halloween's coming up, and we want to get Mike in one of those before, uh, oh, before the year wow. gets out. <laughs> so for The Overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Truster. I'm Mike DiFilippo. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.